Thank you for joining another episode of Tech and Main Presents, where we bring you the best insights from today's leaders and experts in technology. Today, we will be speaking with Andre Kirtland of NetSureit. Andre, welcome to the Tech and Main Presents podcast. Thanks for having me. Oh, you are welcome. You're welcome. As I was saying before we started recording, this is going to be fun. So looking forward to getting to know you. And why don't we go ahead and have you share your background with our audience? Okay. So um, I'm from South Africa. I live there. I have been there all of my life. I've worked all over the world, but being based here, I'm part of a company called Naturitz, which I've been part of for more than 20 years. But I started out not intending to go into an IT career. In the 1990s, I was working part-time while studying other things. And that was the time that uh, the PC revolution was happening and I sort of got sucked into it. And eventually I fulfilled every role there is in technology. I did everything from laying cables to setting up firewalls to writing code. And that gave me a greater deal of background. It taught me many lessons. And eventually out of that, I became a dedicated consultant. I always say my main hope in life is to be a, I want to be a trusted advisor. I want to be the person who gives the advice to my customers that they can trust. And you get to be a trusted advisor by being trustworthy and you get to be trustworthy by giving good advice. So what I do now, absolutely. No, that's the secret. So now I mostly act as a architect on implementation projects. A lot of what I do is cloud-related projects, hybrid clouds, mostly around the Microsoft product set. Our company is a Microsoft partner and very focused in that space. And a lot of the work I do in that space is security-related. So many of our customers are in financial services, especially. They've got very high compliance requirements. They've got lots of eyes on them. They've got a lot heavy price to pay if they've got a security breach or a privacy breach. And I help them build the solutions to help them stay safe and secure. Okay. So, Andre, I I feel like we're going to be going down a lot of rabbit trails for for many reasons. But the 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 first is you you have such an interesting background, but you're also halfway around the world, right? We're we're here in the states, specifically Atlanta, mm-hmm. Georgia. You're in South Africa. Um, for those listeners that aren't familiar with the tech scene in South Africa, what's, what's, what's happening in your backyard? What's happening in your ecosystem? Well, in the 21st century, everybody is milliseconds apart from everybody else. So we, we have the same tech, we have the same systems, the same service. Our customers are sophisticated. They've got sophisticated requirements. So certainly people hear about Africa and they'll say, okay, we're dealing with mud huts and elephants walking down the streets. But the reality is we've got skyscrapers. (laughs) The skyscrapers have got great big banks with tens of thousands of employees. Our economy is up there in the top 20, 30 in the world. So lots of, as I said, financial, lots of mining, lots of manufacturing. So, and we all deal with the same security threats. Those same North Korean hackers that are coming after a company in the States are coming after us. In fact, a lot of the time, we'll be the people that they are proof of concepting their breaches on before they go and try it out in the first world. So we, we've got big battles to fight on this side. 
I think what is different for us, skills can be difficult to acquire. So we also have to get really good at how do we build our teams? How do we build our abilities without being able to say that there's a massive pipeline of skills coming out of local colleges with big computer science programs and things. And I think that's taught us to be innovative and it's taught us to be very good at building the people and the process and not just focus on implementing tools. Andre, I love that answer. And I appreciate it because what, what you did is you immediately went to dispelling the myth. And I think that's one of the things in tech that we don't realize we have these blinders on, but we really do. Right? And so we think that the tech ecosystem is different in South Africa. We think that South Africa is different from Latvia. Latvia is different from the UK. The UK is different from the US. But to your point, right, we are all dealing with the same issues, right? We all have, like you said, large cities with tens of thousands of people carrying briefcases going off to work every morning, right? And the same issues that you hear in the news, North Korean hacker this, Chinese hacker, Chinese espionage, everyone around the world is dealing with those same issues. So that, that's why I love the answer and I appreciate the way you set that up. All right, so Andre, with that, you're there at NetSureit and you've been there for quite some time. Tell our audience, what has you most excited about your daily work? There's two things I really enjoy. The one is I love developing people and mentoring them and helping them grow. So I've taken in many young people that had aspirations more than skills. And eventually they walk out of there as experts. And then that really gets me going. And I think that's really important. It's part of a sort of pay it forward because other people help me. Now I'm helping the next generations. So that is a big part of my life. And then as I'm getting more and more involved in security, I'm, I'm really starting to feel a little bit like Batman. You, you feel that you're part of the consortium, you're fighting crime, you're a superhero, and there's really bad and dangerous people out there that need to be smacked down. And I think I'm part of that fight. Oh, I, I, I love the way you put that. Because as, as someone who is comic book fan, superhero fan, right? Marvel more than DC. So okay, don't, okay. hey, don't, don't, don't come at me, but I'm just saying, but that, <laughs> that, that superhero motif, I think is very appropriate for what we do on a day in and day out basis, right? There, there are bad guys that, as you said, need to be smacked down. And so to be a part of security in any way, shape or form, you are helping in that fight. So wonderful answer. But obviously there's, there's things that you're really passionate about beyond the mentoring, beyond helping develop that next generation. Your background, you're, you're, you're looking at DevSecOps and the rise of DevSecOps. Talk to us about that. Okay. So as you probably know, as you well know, there are tens of thousands of developers all around us. They're all sitting there writing code. They're busy pushing out apps. Many, many, many companies can't just go out and buy every app that they need off a shelf or off a web store. They end up having to either write an app or they've inherited an app that they have to keep alive, or at the very least, they're customizing an app in order to use it. So all of those developers are sitting there writing millions of lines of code. And all of those custom written apps and those custom written lines of code 
become part of the attack surface. They become part of what the attackers are busy coming after. So the attackers know that unfortunately the road to hell was built one shortcut at a time. And no developers, no nobody intentionally ever writes code in order for it to be insecure. But people don't know better. They maybe are under pressure. They've got to get this thing out under time, under budget. They don't get to spend enough time on the security. And you end up that there's security holes in that custom code. And now you've got the bad guys coming after it and it starts getting exploited. And you can then get very bad situations where years after an application has gone into production, somebody finally finds that hole and suddenly you're breached, your information is stolen, you're ransomware, and your name is mud because out in the media, everybody's saying, oh, you were the people that just lost a million people's private information. Okay, so those are really bad situations to be in. So with time, in the last few decades, we've had the rise of DevOps. And DevOps was saying, let's improve how we write apps. So we merge dev and we merge ops so that those are not seen as two totally separate processes. We integrate those. We ensure that we have a single automated process from the point where we initially wrote our app to the point where we put it into production. And along the way, you're having the developers involved in the deployment process. You've got deployment people involved in the development process. We have a better app and we have a better, more cost-effective and faster way to get apps out. So DevSecOps, same principle. It just literally adds security into that process as well. And it's saying, while we're developing, while we're planning for operations and deployment, let's also ensure that we tick the boxes about security. Let's ensure that if there are security risks, that we pick them up early on. The traditional problem with development is that what we do as people, we differentiate, we specialize. So we go and say, the people that are hunting the mammoth are not the same people that are skinning the mammoth. They're not the same people who are cooking the mammoth. Okay, that's how we did it a million years ago. So to this day, we say, the people writing the code are thinking about the code. They're not thinking about the security. And the problem is, We've finished writing the code. We've finished deploying the code. Then we say, now let's think about let's securing it. Somebody comes in, they do a security analysis. They go look for vulnerabilities. Guess what? They find lots of vulnerabilities. And suddenly your project is blown out of the water because somebody's just given you a list of 5,000 things that are wrong with your app. So there's no way you will finish that app without delaying your release, without slowing down your project, without blowing it out of the water. So end result, you end up saying, okay, let's just try and ignore this. Let's hope like heck that those hackers don't come after us. And then you get bad code being deployed into production. DevSecOps says, no, start that security from the beginning. While you're developing, while you're planning the deployment, tick the security boxes as you're going along to ensure that what comes out of the door is secure from day one. Okay. And so, Andre, in that, in that same vein or keeping with that that same thought, what are the four tactical steps to implement DevSecOps in 2023? So I've been helping a lot of organizations that need to get DevSecOps in place fast. Sometimes they're in-house developers and they've got an internal application, but I've also been working a lot with partners and service providers that are writing apps for other people. And what's become very common 
is that there's now requirements for those dev projects to be able to show that they are secure. The customers won't buy the applications, they won't deploy the applications unless they can certify that those applications pass the security requirements. So I've identified a couple of steps that you can implement quickly to try and vastly improve your security bar in a short period of time. So the first step is I'm saying, go sort out your security basics, especially around your development process. Okay, so that first phase, go do things like protect your developer accounts. The bad guys are going to be trying to do identity theft against your developers, whether it's by social engineering or phishing or some similar technique. So the usual things you do to protect accounts, you MFA them, you give them strong passwords. You have separate developer accounts from the normal user account the person is using to read their email and browse the web. Then protect the developer machines. So give the developers dedicated machines where they are only doing their production development. They've got other machines where they're playing around. You can achieve that by doing things like virtual machines or virtual desktop infrastructure in the cloud or anything else because developers like to play, developers like to experiment, developers like to download funny pieces of code off the internet, install them on their machines, and the next moment it blows up your production code. Okay, so you try and separate those out. You try and do all the usual things to, to protect machines, anti-malware, XDR, calls, et cetera, et cetera, and then especially training. Okay, make sure that the people start understanding how to do security. Okay, and that it's important to do security, which also means the stakeholders, the executives that are involved in those dev projects need to buy in. They need to say, we need to support this getting secure. And that's your first big chunk. Second one, now you need to start shifting left. So when you talk about DevSecOps, you would have heard this term, shift left. So what this is referring to is in a traditional project schedule, when you've got a Gantt chart, it goes from where you start on the left through all the various phases to where you finish on the right, okay? And traditionally, as I said, when we do a project, we initially we envisioned what we were going to do. We planned the architecture, we developed it, we maybe did some testing, we deployed it. And then, oh heck, we need to do some security. So what we're saying in DevSecOps, move that security as far left and as fast as what you can. Preferably, get to the point where you're still thinking up, well, what is this application going to be? When you're doing the envisioning, you're doing the planning, you're busy selecting the technologies that are going to be going in. You're still busy saying, is it on-prem? Is it in the cloud? Is it on Azure? Is it in AWS? Are we using this language? Are we using that language? At that stage, there are decisions that you can be taking that have an impact on how secure this end result is going to be. So if you shift left into the architecture and the envisioning phase and you start saying, let's take security, let's take decisions about how we will develop based on the security outcome, you're going to make it a lot faster and a lot easier to fix that application at the end. Or at least, even better, you won't have to fix the app because it will already have been done properly as you went along. Okay. So... When you're doing that, you need to spend a bit of time envisioning the threat. You need to go and imagine what is it that can go wrong. At this point, diversity is your best friend. Okay. If you go and ask the developer, what will go wrong with your app? The answer is always going to be nothing. I'm going to write perfect code. It's going to be a great app. Right. So at this point, you want to bring in some infosec guys. You want to bring in some networking guys. You want to bring in somebody who understands compliance. You want to bring in people that... Um, are going to be able to imagine what can possibly happen to apps. Just get their inputs. 
if you're lucky, you can get it for free and the price of a, a cup of coffee. Maybe you have to pay a little bit of money. But at this point, you need to do some trade modeling. And you kind of need to go and say, what potentially are the things that somebody could use someday to come after? There's threat frameworks that you can use as well. So at this point, go and reference something like NIST, okay, which has some guidelines about what you should be doing inside of your apps. Go and reference something like OWASP, okay, so the Open Web Application Security Project, which has a lot of guidelines of things that typically happen to web and internet-facing applications. Look at those top threads and then go and say, how do I engineer them out from the beginning and make those decisions? Work, go work on the assumption. And again, people struggle with this. They go and say, well, we're going to deploy our application into a secure infrastructure. The infrastructure will keep us secure. That is the oldest idea in security. That thing died 20 years ago. Okay, we're now in the age of zero trust. Make the assumption, assume breach, assume that your application is going to be living like a little fish swimming around in shark infested waters. Okay, your application is going to be on a network where the bad guys are already on the inside. Okay, so you need to write your application that way. So that's your second big layer that you've got to put onto your DevSecOps. Third one, you now need to say, where am I going to put my code and my other application artifacts, all the bit of my app? So again, traditionally, what did your developer do? They put all of the source code on their hard drive. Maybe they put it onto a file server. Maybe they copied it into some public repository. What you need to be doing is you need to go and create a private, well-managed repository for your source code. So the standard these days is Git. There are many implementations of that. So GitHub is a commercial implementation that is very commonly used. So you put something like that in place. And now you start treating that like you would do any other confidential information. You start setting security on it. You start saying, who's allowed to do what? You define roles. You try and follow the principle of least privilege, much beloved by security professionals, which says everybody's got to have the rights and the permissions to do the work they need to be able to do, but no more. If somebody's got to be able to read the code, but they mustn't be able to change the code, then only give them the rights to read the code. If they only have to have access to part of your application, then only give them access to part of your application. Why? Because otherwise, if bad guys compromise one developer account, they can get to everything that that developer can get, and they can make changes to everything that developer can get to. This is also where you now have to start saying, well, now that I've got my code in that repository, let me start looking through it. Let me start cleaning it up. Let me start looking for some of those vulnerabilities. One of the first things that you want to go look for is application authentication artifacts. So things like usernames, passwords, certificates, keys, the sort of information that the application needs to do its work in the rest of the infrastructure. Worst case to store that stuff inside of your application source code. First reason, because you don't want to hard code those sort of things into the application itself. But second of all, again, somebody compromises the source code, suddenly they've got the username and the password of a service account. They can start acting as that service account, and anybody who knows the cybersecurity is going to know that a service account in the hands of a bad guy is a terrible thing, okay, because that person can now act as that service account and do everything. So you want to start scanning through, and this is where we get to scanning tools that can actually look through source code, and they can start identifying those sort of artifacts and that sort of configuration information. And if you find it, 
First of all, you use it as a teachable moment to go back to the developer and go, okay, don't do that again. But second of all, you can start removing those items out of the code and you start putting them in things like a key vault or some other secure repository and you reference them from within your code. Similarly, your developers are probably using uh, libraries and modules that somebody else wrote out there on the internet. And all of you have probably heard about supply chain attacks. This is a classic supply chain attack. So somebody compromised company X. Company X wrote a library that you are using inside of your application. That library contains the, the, the working bits for a backdoor that somebody will eventually use to compromise your application. So if we have a proper code scanning tool, then that has the ability to go and identify the same way an antivirus software will identify a virus. This will go and identify, oh, that's a suspect library. Don't use that version of that library. Warn somebody about it. Say, ah, no, let's block that. Maybe we can whitelist, we can blacklist, graylist the different types of libraries and the sources where we're allowing these sort of components to come from and then configure the applications appropriately. Okay, so lots of things that you can do at the level of the repo to try and protect your app. And this is probably one of the most important technical DevSecOps components that you can put in place. But every single solution known to man and known to the IT industry always has three components to it. It's technology, people, and process. So as you're doing these things, you're having to train those people. You're needing to train the developers on how to do these things securely. You've got to get them used to doing things the secure way to stop doing those insecure methods that they had in the past. And you've got to put in place the processes around it so that, for instance, when I'm busy checking in code, I don't just go and update the main repository of the application. It goes into what they call a separate branch that first gets checked, gets verified, and only then do we merge it into the main application, as an example. So we try and put in place all of those secure processes around our code, around our application. Okay. And then finally, fourth major barrier that we've got across, or fourth step in terms of our DevSecOps, when we're ready to start talking about deploying our application and we start talking about things like our pipelines that we're going to use, this is where you'll hear phrases like CICD, continuous integration, continuous deployment. Now you've got to make sure that you do those securely. So you need to secure the credentials again that those pipelines will use to talk to the servers and to the other infrastructure, the app services, et cetera, where the application is going to be deployed the credentials it's going to need to talk to the databases and everything else that that application is going to use. You continue doing testing at this stage. So part of your deployment process is that you have test gates where you will say, take the code, deploy it into a test environment, test it, verify that it works, then deploy it into production. So while we're testing for reliability at that point, you will also want to go and check for security again. So again, we do code scanning. We maybe deploy the application into some sort of sandbox where we try and run it and we're busy monitoring automated tools. What is that application doing? Okay, cool. It's talking to our database. It's talking to Microsoft where there's a library it's using and it's talking to this other IP address that turns out to be a command and control server for some malware. Okay. So you want to be looking for those sort of things again as part of that process. And then you finally can release that application to production deployment. At that stage, when you're doing this testing, it's not the first time that you're doing testing. 
by this stage, your application would have been tested and its components would have been tested again and again and again continuously throughout the development process. So instead of developing or discovering thousands of risks and issues right at the end and now delaying your whole release, now you will have a controllable amount of changes you have to make before you can actually go and release that application. And that is how you get DevSecOps in place. So Andre, here's, here's a couple of things, right? One is obviously, I mean, you, you, you literally just for free taught a masterclass, right? On, on sorry. No, no, don't be sorry, friend. No, that's, that, that is, that is, that is a compliment. I mean, and that's all right. So not, not to sound too cheesy, corny, but this is why we do the podcast, right? You can, you can get, you can, you can, you can go to a SANS training session, right? And pay thousands of dollars, euros, what have you, and, and get access to great information. But one of the things that I've always felt very strongly about is that there should not be a paywall between the listener or the user and great content. Now, if you've written a book, if you have put out a training course, if there is something that you are offering for money, you are well within your right to do that. All right. So there's, so there's a difference. You, the laborer is worth their hire and you pay what that person is asking because they are worth it. Right. So we're not talking about that, but what we are talking about is the, 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 the idea sharing, right. Um, benchmarking and, and, and being able to see, okay, Exactly. What 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 is going on in DevSecOps that I need to be aware of, right? You you shouldn't need to the only way for you to get that shouldn't be in a paid environment. Does, does that make sense, right? So I Absolutely. I, yeah. Yeah, no, so because I, so we're all, what I'm saying. Yeah. Sure, sure. No, we're all fighting crime here. We we're all trying to make the world a safer place. So spreading this sort of info helps with that e e effort. And it hopefully somewhere shifts somebody's mind just a little bit, whether it's a developer, the professional or an executive that maybe says, hmm, maybe we need to start doing some of that. So uh, yeah, it's important that we all talk about these things and talk about them regularly until they're commonly understood and accepted. Right. In terms of um, getting it out there, there are a lot of resources. What I'm trying to do is apart from appearing on podcasts, is I'm trying to use my LinkedIn to post a, a articles with links in them to resources, help people get educated, help them find resources. There's a lot of it is free. It's not necessarily paywalled. So a lot of these organizations like SAS Institute, like OWASP, some of the vendors, people like the Microsoft are publishing a lot of info, videos, documents, tutorials, labs. And uh, it's really an opportunity for people to go out there and just start trying. One of the things that, that is lovely about the era we're living in now, the year 2020, is most of the cloudy technologies you can now learn for zero. If you think about it, 10 years ago, if you wanted to become an expert in anything, you wanted to learn SQL Server, or you wanted to learn Cisco firewalls. You had to go and get hardware that was capable of running that. Even if you could get an evaluation version of the software, you had to have a device. Now, 
you can sign up with one of the big cloud providers, Microsoft or Amazon or Google, and you get yourself a trial subscription and you can build everything they have out there in the cloud. You can access either free or really cheap online training. You can get lots of labs. And at the end of the day, you learn a lot more through your fingertips than through your eyes and your ears. You can watch lots of videos. You can listen to podcasts in the day. Until you do that lab, until you try it, that's only when you really know how to do it. But you can now do that for zero dollars down. And anybody can turn themselves into a massive professional for any of these things, basically on their own dime. So yeah, I'm putting out, you can access it on my LinkedIn. Okay, so linkedin.com forward slash Andre Kirtland, K-E-A-R-T-L-A-N-D. And uh, yeah, follow the links. And if you have questions, ping me and I'll try and endeavor to help. Obviously, if at some point you want to hire some of my time to come out and help you and, and talk to you a bit, yeah, I'm open to that. That's how I pay my bills. It's We, we need to get the, the cyber crime down. And this is a big and important way to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very well said, sir. Very well said. So Andre, let's let's do this. Let's let's go to some questions that will allow us to know you a little better. And so Thank the you. first question would be name your favorite musician or band. That is the hardest question because I have very eclectic tastes. I, I literally love if, uh, music from Beethoven to Bob Marley and lots of things in between. So it very much depends on my mood. It depends on what my soul needs at that moment in time. So if I were to find myself on a Saturday evening on my own with liquid in my glass, listening to music on my own, chances are at some point I will end up on Leonard Cohen. And, uh, and, and that's going to tickle my soul. If I'm finding myself in sunshine, driving my car on an open road, quite possibly going to end up listening to 70s rock. So things like Deep Purple and Queen, Zeppelin. So, uh, yeah, me, me, I enjoy my music, but I don't get, like many things in my life, I don't like to get locked down in just one thing. Oh, Andre, as they say, variety is the spice of life. Absolutely. Oh, so I, I, that's a, that is a good, solid answer. How about a favorite hobby or pastime? Look, learning is really my thing. But I, I, I have, since I was a tiny top, I like learning new things and taking things apart and putting them back together again. So I probably do less of the, the mechanical taking things apart is what I would like to do. I've had some projects that have been stalled for a decade, but I do enjoy reading I, and, and especially nonfiction. And it's not, most of it's not technology. So I do enjoy reading everything from science, do a lot of history because that's how you learn how the world works, psychology, you name it. I, I really enjoy that. And you can't just sit and read. So I do enjoy getting out into the sunshine. I'm lucky I live in, in one of the sunniest countries in the world. So I do enjoy walking. I enjoy hiking. I do enjoy listening to podcasts while I'm doing that because then I'm learning while I'm busy doing it. So <laughs> podcasts are a thing in my life. And uh, yeah, it, uh, I, I do enjoy the outdoors, even hunting from time to time, which again is something we have a lot of opportunity for. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. And so with that, when you are on vacation, what's the favorite place of yours to visit? I'd say my absolute favorite. Again, it's very regional. I'm in South Africa. I'm probably 200 miles away from the Kruger National Park. 
And I love going there because it is the one place on the planet that is still old, old, ancient, pre-human Africa. It is huge. It is um, as big as Israel. I know it's one country. It, and there's, it's only animals. Okay, there is the occasional place for people to stay and a few roads for them to drive on. But you get herds of hundreds of elephant, buffalo, lions hunting them. And you get the opportunity to go in there and watch this. And again, it's educational, but it's also so peaceful because if, if you're watching a lion stalk a buffalo, you can't think of anything else at that moment in time. So it's, it's like Zen. It's like meditation. So oh. that really cleans my mind. Okay. Oh, that's some good stuff there. That's some good stuff. All right. So Andre, let me ask you this. What teacher at any level has had the greatest impact on you? I've had many great teachers, so it's hard to, to pick one. I must say, I had a, a history teacher in high school, Mrs. Hirschhorn, Miss Hirschhorn, and she taught me about research and structuring my thoughts. And those skills she taught me have been so valuable to me ever since. That's the one thing I learned at school that I'm still applying all the time. That's a, that's a, that's a great Great answer. And uh, I'm curious, have you or were you able to keep in contact with Miss Herschel after high school? I think I saw her once at a high school reunion. Okay. She moved to another town. I think I've lost track of her. I should maybe even go try and, and look her up again because, yeah, it, it, it was quite, quite influential on my life. Okay. Great. Great. So, Andre, we've, we've come to that time in the podcast where we are on our last question. And honestly, this is one of my favorites because we get to jump in the time machine and we go back to 18-year-old Andre. And so what would the Andre of today tell his 18-year-old self? One thing I've realized that I didn't quite realize back then, people seldom say no when you ask with confidence. That is very true. That is, that is very true. It, when, you are, when you are bold, you, you do end up more often than not getting what you're looking for. Absolutely. So that, that has served me well, but it took me many years to realize that. Oh, that's very good advice, Andre, for all of us. Yeah, life. And I, and I think, and, and it's funny, I had this conversation recently some some good friends and I were were talking about the difference between humility and passivity right and how you 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 often end up mistaking one for the other mm -hmm. humility is more akin to you know you you you're confident in who you are you're confident yeah. in what you bring to the table but you will place a demand on the situation. Yep. Yeah. You, you can even, and it sounds contradictory, but you can be confidently humble. Absolutely. Right. Because you, you, that regardless of what happens, your, your, your humanity is still intact. Yeah. Right. You, you need to know who you are, who you want to be, and you need to be that and not hide it away, not try and pretend it's not there. Oh. I agree. And Andre, that is a wonderful note 
to end on. <laughs> and I know you shared your your LinkedIn profile before. And of course, we'll have your, your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. But are Thank there you. other ways that people can get in contact with you? I think just going to our company website, so naturid.com, P-V-D-A-C-U-R-I-T.com. Okay. You'll find if you drop a line for me there, it'll get to me and I'll be able to get back to you. All right. Awesome. So Andre, with that, I can't thank you enough for being on the podcast. And so again, we really appreciate your time. That's a pleasure. That was a great interview. So thanks for having me and thanks for giving me the opportunity to fight some more crime. All right. And with that, Thank you, as always, Techaman Presents family for listening. And be sure to tune in next time when we will have another technology expert share their wisdom. Goodbye for now.